Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Book Chat with Pandora and Bobby. I'm journalist and broadcaster Pandora Sykes. And I'm novelist Bobby Palmer. And unlike with previous podcasts I've made, you'll be able to tell us apart by Bobby's luxurious baritone. I did just realise that I should have started with a ho-ho-ho, seeing as our first episode is the festive privilege of coming out in December. Do that again. Let's get a jingle on it. Ho-ho-ho! So rich, so deep. (laughs) Shall we kick off by explaining a little bit about what book chat is. Yes, consider this your very official welcome to Book Chat with Pandora and Bobby, a monthly podcast where we each bring a book to chat about. But here's our thing. The books have to be more than two years old. In our own tiny way, we want to break free of the the rat race, which we're both personally familiar with, of trying to keep up with a nonstop train of hot new releases, so that before you know it or before I know it, There's a whole host of books gathering dust on my bookshelves that I'm longing to read or even reread. Think of it as slow down reading. And as we're only releasing an episode once a month, slow podcasting. Bobby and I met earlier this year when I was interviewing him about his hot new release, in fact, and quickly found ourselves exchanging extremely long emails about books. That was very lockdown vibes of us, that. Yeah, like MSN pals, but for books. And so we decided to start Book Chat so that we can bore you lot too. Sometimes we'll love each other's book picks and sometimes, as you'll no doubt see, we find ourselves divided. But before we get into our books for this first episode, Bobby, tell me what you're reading right now. I'm currently reading a book called The Arrest by Jonathan Lethem. It's set in a near future America where all the technology has stopped working. The main character is an ex-screenwriter. He's living this agrarian dystopian life in a seaside town and then his old producer turns up out of the blue one day in a giant silver futuristic nuclear powered supercar it's about as weird as it sounds i think it sounds very festive and jolly for my sins and all our chat about why we need to read the books on our bookshelves i'm reading a proof copy of nisha dolan's new book happy couple which comes out next spring If you loved her debut, Exciting Times, as I did, then you are in for a treat. I also loved Exciting Times and I didn't even realise she had a new book coming out. So consider me jealous. Before we get into the books in question, consider this a spoiler alert of sorts. We want to have a really meaty chat about the books we've chosen, not do that vague, abstract book review thing where you just hint at things which means if you haven't read the books, you may get some spoilers. Bobby, let's kick off with your first book, one of your favourites of all time, am I right? You are right. Uh, The book I'm bringing to the table today, or to whatever cosy reading nook uh, listeners would like to picture, is Tin Man by Sarah Winman. Tin Man is a book about the relationship between three characters. You've got this morose, quiet man called Ellis, his wife, Annie, uh, and their best friend and Ellis's teenage lover, Michael. It's a very sparse book, been about 100 pages from Ellis's point of view, then 100 pages from Michael's. You get a window into what brings these three people together. It's Sarah Women's third novel of, of four. Her debut, When God Was a Rabbit, was published in 2011. That was an international bestseller. It won a bunch of awards. Her second book, uh, A Year of Marvelous Ways, came out in 2015, then Tin Man in 2017. Right now, she's probably best known as the author of Still Life, uh, which came out last year and has become this literary juggernaut. It was an instant Sunday Times bestseller and it's been on pretty much every best of 2021 list. That is very true. I was a judge on the Women's Prize this year and it was one of our long-listed and you're right that it now comes with lots of hype. Yeah, it feels like sort of everyone's reading it and everyone's recommended it. And it's interesting because Tin Man is, is very different. It didn't, it didn't exactly fly under the radar. It was nominated for the Costa back in 2017 when it came out. But I don't feel like I've heard as many people talk about it. Did you know Tin Man before I recommend it? Had, had you read any Sarah Woodman before? 
I had never heard of Tin Man. I had read and loved When God Was a Rabbit and I'd read Still Life as a as a judge, as I mentioned. And I liked Still Life, but I hadn't been totally absorbed by it. But no, I'd never heard of Tin Man until you picked it. I think a, a lot of people haven't. Um, and that's, you know, that's something I'm, I'm trying to rectify today. I picked this book up in the first place knowing nothing about it. It was the first Sarah Women book I'd read. I must have read it not long after it first came out um, a few years ago. I was recommended it by a friend, um, but not with any any context other than, you know, you have to read this, which is now what I say about this book to to everyone else. It's not a long read. I must have read it in one or two sittings. And I remember just having this feeling that I was reading something really, really special. I think that the best books are the ones where you can't can't really explain what you like about it. They just like reach inside your chest and, and move things around. I really love that as an expression, that it just reaches into your chest and, and moves things around. And I think it's I think it's true too. Sometimes over explaining something means it loses its charm, which is um, the first risk for this podcast. <laughs> it's also probably an apt expression for a book called Tin Man, because the Tin Man doesn't have a heart, which we'll get into. Uh, yeah, I think the best books, the, the best films, the best pieces of music, they're the ones where you have sort of like a physical reaction to them, uh, or they leave you feeling a little bit changed. For me, this is one of those books. I almost, I almost like it too much to explain why I like it. But... I'm now going to explain why I like it. Uh, so I lied. <laughs> For me, it's about as pitch perfect an exploration of masculinity as I've ever read. You have these two characters, two men, uh, and both of them almost represent the yin and yang of of being a man, you know, in inverted commas. Ellis, who's accidentally become his own toxic, toxically masculine dad, uh, who won't talk about his feelings or address his emotional complexities. And then Michael, who's much more sensitive, in touch with his sexuality, in touch with his emotions, and is almost punished by the world and, and by Ellis for that fact. There's a quote early on in the book about how Van Gogh's Sunflowers was apparently painted as a gift for Gauguin. Gauguin? 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the properly French version. There's a quote earlier We're not in the book cutting this, by the about way. <laughs> how Van Gogh's Sunflowers was apparently painted as a gift for Gauguin. Uh, which I think gets to the heart of, of what the whole story is about. Men and boys should be capable of beautiful things. I think that's a, a really lovely quote and one that one that gets to the heart of that beautiful masculinity at the centre of this book uh, and how beautiful uh, men can be when they're when they're in touch with their emotions. I, I will. I, I should probably say that I'm, the irony isn't lost on me that I'm saying the best book I've read about masculinity uh, and what it's like to be a man is by a woman, especially since the the other one that always comes to mind for me is Normal People by Sally Rooney. Connell, do you mean? Do you think that's the second best depiction of masculinity in literature? Yeah, I, I genuinely, I, definitely in recent years, the, the, the therapy scene in, in that book absolutely destroyed me. That scene is done, I think it's done almost word for word in the TV version. And yes, I think, I think Connell's, um, Connell's difficulty expressing himself and, and general sort of silence, even when it's infuriating, is what I love about that depiction of masculinity. And Ellis in this novel is exactly the same. It's become a bit of a cliche to say that, you know, men should talk about their feelings, but it's something that, that people say so often for a reason. Both Ellis and Tin Man, both uh, Connell and Normal People, they, they, they self-sabotage through this lack of communication, uh, this this inability to understand their own emotions, this stoic sense of, of learned masculinity. I don't feel like I've read a huge number of modern books which, which address those ideas head on at least without the men in question being, you know, cowboys or detectives or hard-boiled criminals. I think there's definitely this feeling with Ellis of he was kind of amazed that he got to find a wonderful wife after his mum died and then it was taken away and it feels like to speak of any of it would tempt fate. You know, like when Ellis's mum dies and Michael finds him by the bridge, this is when they're teenagers, and Ellis says, what do we do without her? And Michael says, we carry on and we don't give up. And then he kisses them and it's their first kiss. And another good example, I think, of this, and it made me cry reading it and it will likely make me cry again now as I'm very tired, is when Michael's father catches him trying on his mother's old clothes. His mother has left them and it's before Michael comes to stay with... Does he stay with his aunt? Is that who he comes to stay with? It's... Um, I'm not sure she's related to them I, I i think i i could never really work out the the connection just that she sort of owned the shop that they were always in she might be his aunt yeah 
his father catches him trying on his mother's old clothes. She's left without any kind of explanation and he's furious. And it's this dual moment where Michael is both experimenting with his sexuality and yearning for his mother who left him without warning. And he asks his father if he can just keep her handbag, just her handbag to keep his pencils in. Hold on, I actually just want to read a bit of it because I think it's such a, I think she does scenes like this best. What the fuck do you think you're doing, said my father. I hadn't heard him come in. He repeated the question. Playing, I said. Get that stuff off and go to your room. I began to undress, burning with shame and humiliation. And the skirt, said my father. The skirt slid to the floor, exposing my nakedness. My father looked away in disgust. I want to keep this, I said, holding up the handbag. No, just to put my pencils in. If you ever take it out of this fucking house... I waited for the conclusion of this threat, but it never came. My father disappeared downstairs and out of the front door, leaving me naked, bewildered, orphaned before time. I was too young, too confused to understand fully what had happened in that room. That my father had said so little had been the wound, though. For him, there was nothing to discuss, because discussion would have made the moment real, just as my mother's departure had been so real. I was swept under the carpet to join her. I mean, that just really encapsulates that silent, silently devastating and devastated masculinity that you talk about, I think. And there's a, it's funny, there's actually a similar moment later on when Michael and Ellis are in France and, and it seems just just for a short amount of time like they might actually, you know, get this life together that, that, that Michael wants them to have. And I think he returns to the apartment and, and can see straight away... Uh, in Ellis's face that he's it's not going to happen that, that they that they're going to go back to England and sort of forget that their love affair ever happened and it, there's, there's a line it says something like I I ran up the stairs and I died and it's just there's so many of those those quietly devastating heartbreaking little moments Michael suffers so many of them throughout the book and, and most of them because of Ellis um, and because of Ellis's sort of inability to to open up and to and to you know not be his his dad. When I was rereading it, I I did start to wonder whether it was it was right that Ellis gets so much of the the spotlight. Whether he deserves Michael, whether he deserves Annie, uh, and and whether he deserves half of the book. I definitely would have quite liked to hear from Annie because because she she's one of those characters. You know, it's a book about three people, but you only hear the point of view of two of them. So she sort of feels like a little bit like she's just there to facilitate the other two sometimes without you know getting to hear her voice. You know what, an Annie sandwich, so her getting the middle section would have absolutely rounded the story out for me. I accept that it might have changed the sort of feeling of the whole book, but Sarah Women loves a deeply understanding thruple. It pops up in When God Was a Rabbit too. I mean, Annie is this heavenly character. She's an amazing wife to Ellis. She's a wonderful best friend to Michael. And she knows that Ellis and Michael were lovers, even though her husband has never spoken to her about it. And she also knows, although she never kind of prompts them to verbalize it, um, she never wants to be cruel in any way. She also knows that they probably still love each other a little bit now. There's a really idealistic view of of love in this book. And I, I think that there, there, there is in When God Was a Rabbit too. The way that anyone who's capable of loving is is allowed to love whoever they want. You get that in still life as well, actually. You know, you can love whoever you want all the time, whether that's from a sexuality perspective or, or a monogamy perspective. It's quite a joyful outlook. Um, and it is really interesting that, that both this book and When God Was a Rabbit have have a, a thruple uh, of sorts right at their centre. But I think my favourite bit of this book, and I, I'm probably alone in this, is is Ellis's half because it, it's it's really slow and it's sort of excruciating in how mundane it is. He he goes to work at this car factory. He goes back to an empty house and he just thinks of of what could have been. Some of the most beautiful lines come when he's just just existing or just trying to exist. And I think the writing, especially around around grief and around loss and around things unsaid, is is really, really sublime. There's another of those small, uh, devastating moments which really stuck with me since I first read it, um, which is also about being a- unable to articulate your feelings. It might be an all-time uh, favourite line of mine. It's from Michael. It's about when he sort of finally realises it's, it's not going to happen with Ellis. And he says, I wonder what the sound of a heart breaking might be. And I think it might be quiet, unperceptively so, and not dramatic at all, like the sound of an exhausted swallow falling gently to earth. 
That's such a gorgeous line. You're so right. Isn't it interesting too how that really chimes with Max Porter's grief as a thing with feathers, this idea of grief as a bird? I feel like there's a lot of uh, bird, you know, death bird, bird death metaphors in in fiction. I, I mean, I, I know a book that you loved, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin. That, that has a, another really good bird death metaphor that I won't spoil because it's it's uh, quite a recent book and that's also that's also another book about a, a great platonic uh, non-sexual love affair uh, both that book and this book are, are built on that central idea that friendship is is just as valuable a form of love as as romantic love just to go back to that what you just said about grief th- that your favorite bit was the kind of excruciating mundanity of grief and how you're probably alone in that being your favorite book I actually don't think you are because I was reading a review of a book that was about a man losing his wife to motor neuron disease, you know, brutal. And the reviewer was saying people people love books about grief. And it's actually what I'm asked about more than anything is books about grief. And I think what's so good about Tin Man is that what we're only just really learning or talking about, those of us who haven't experienced devastating grief, is the mundanity of it. And I think that's also done well in A Man Called Ove, which I know you're a fan of, where it is just that everyday agony of getting up, of shoveling the snow out of the porch, of putting your trousers on, of, of feeding yourself, just the agony of doing that without the person that, especially with, for Ove and Ellis, without the person that actually forced you to kind of be an active participant in the world. They're almost they're very different books, but they're they're quite similar men, you know, very very buttoned up and and very serious. Yeah. Um, and there is a line in in a man called Ove that's something like I'm going to absolutely botch this, but it, it it's something like it's talking about his wife, and it says she was all the color in his world, and you know since since she died, his world's basically black and white. And I think the same thing goes for both of these characters. It, it's that cruelty of having to wake up and make your breakfast and tie your shoelaces when the only person that was that was filling your life with color in Ellis's case the the two people because you know he was in love with both both Annie and Michael and he's lost both of them so as bleak as it sounds it really is what's the point situation and and that I listened to a really interesting interview with Sarah Winman where she talks about Ellis's section and and sort of how how she approached that, which I think is quite is quite relevant here. Estrangements happen all the time, you know, and life isn't really that kind of doesn't offer that that great dramatic spectrum. Most of the most of the the losses or the sadnesses or the misunderstandings of life come from that grey area, and sometimes okayness is enough. We live in a world of hyperbole today, of everything's amazing and everything's wonderful and everything's this. But I would sort of settle for being okay, actually. And these conversations and these relationships, they're they're okay. They're not brilliant, but they work and they're real and they're trying and they might get a little bit better. But as you say, they might not, but it's okay. I also really like this idea of redemption. All of her books have it, this sort of second chance. For example, Michael and Ellis lose touch and then become friends again before Michael passes away rather than him just disappearing out of his life forever. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in in relation to sort of in the context of that Sarah Women interview because she says something like estrangements do happen and it's like, yes, but they, you know, people don't always make up. And it does feel like there's this tendency in, in her books to give happy endings to characters who who don't, actually get overall happy endings. So, you know, Michael and Ellis don't end up together, but they do reconnect before uh, before the sort of great tragedy of the book. I, I'm i generally someone who considers myself allergic to things which are, are too quaint and, and you know, um, sort of like happy. <laughs> but I do also like my stories to be tied up in a little bow. So I think this is, this is the, a bit of the best of both worlds for me. You know, a little bit of resolution in a book which ultimately isn't isn't a massively happy book a side note which i i i realized we haven't discussed is the the epigraph at the start of the book which is it's it's a letter 
from Van Gogh to his brother, you obviously there's there's so much so much mention of him as a as a painter that sunflowers is a huge part of the book, and there's this constant idea of going south to France like like Van Gogh did and like um, Michael and Ellis do, and then Michael does again. The quote at the start of the book is, "I already feel that it has done me good to go south, the better to see the north." And I think that's just so brilliant because it could be about so many different things in this book. It could be about experimenting with your sexuality. It could be about uh, grieving someone that you you loved and your grief only existing because you love them so much. Or if you don't read into it too much, it could be literally just about going to France, which all the characters do. Now, what about the reviews? Is there anything that made you nod vigorously or conversely that you violently disagree with? The There was a good review in The Guardian which I think rightly recognised it as a novel about grief, but not just about grief for people who've died, although obviously it is about that. Everyone in this book is missing something and and sort of dwelling on the fact that they miss it. And um, Hannah Beckerman in The Guardian said, these are characters who grieve not only for people, but for the desires they've relinquished, whether sexual, artistic or emotional. (laughs) I really struggled with the word uh, relinquished there. I really liked something that Joe Hayden said in the Irish Independent, I think it was, about the title evoking The Wizard of Oz. And while Ellis, who is the novel's tin man, he's a fixer of cars, does have a heart, it's very broken. And in order to heal, he must go on a journey. He must follow the yellow brick road. And I think while while Ellis is is sort of the, the tin man, Michael could be the tin man too. Uh, you know, he spends so much of the novel grieving his heart. He talks about his heart being broken so often and whether that be for the for the, for the life that he never got to have with Ellis or for his friends and lovers who are dying of AIDS which is a huge part of the book he he literally gets given the nickname uh, Monsieur Triste Mr Sad because his is a really sad story and I think it's extra sad because he's so himself he's so in love with Ellis and it's Ellis's refusal to be himself that scuppers their great love story before it can even start Michael then has to live with that rejection uh sort of alongside that rejection for the rest of his life this sort of benign queer first love, these things are huge elements of this book and they inform every single interaction between these characters. There's a bit later on when um, when Michael is on the AIDS ward in the hospital talking to, to Chris, who is a friend he's made who is dying of AIDS. He shows Chris a picture of Ellis and Chris says, is he dead? Uh, to which Michael responds or wants to respond, oh God, no not everybody dies, which is very much a comment of, you know, Michael's gay, Chris is gay, and and the assumption that Ellis is gay means that the expectation is that he's died because everyone's dying. And, and, and it's a sad thought that Ellis has almost saved himself from that fate simply by not being himself and, and you know, sort of leading the the straight life, which, you know, which which might, might be himself. You, you don't really get... An, indication that he's not happy with Annie but but it's definitely like why is Michael the one who's going through all this pain and suffering when he's he's the one who's who's sort of telling the truth do you think that this makes it sound a bit like a little life which I adore but some people have called trauma porn and I don't think this book is I think it's rightly devastating and in Michael's half devastated by AIDS but the book like particularly Michael's half, like it's so bouncy. It is. It is amazing because AIDS is such a huge part of of Michael's half, and and for it to not be thoroughly depressing is 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 a really really amazing feat. Uh, you know, it's not a cheerful book, but it is far from trauma porn. I'd say it's really beautiful. It's got some properly soothing, life affirming moments. It's got humour. It's got really gorgeous moments of description, which which make you smile. Um, and I think it's that description of of, of the, the beauty of the world and of love and of friendship that, that elevates it from just being a, a, you know, quote unquote, sad book. Would you have changed anything? Yeah. I, so I think as much as I just said, the description of the beauty of the world is so great. Um, I probably would have had less wandering around France, smelling the lavender, drinking nice wine, eating nice cheese. It just felt a bit fanciful in a book that was, that was otherwise quite grounded and real. And although it feels weird to want an already short book to be shorter, it felt like that that sort of extra trip to France that Michael makes didn't really fit in a book that already had several quite jarring uh, tone shifts. 
for me, the thing that stuck in my craw is that I would say it felt like two different books in one. The tone in Elliot's book versus Michael's was so different. And I don't know, maybe it would have felt more coherent if Annie had had a section in the middle. One thing I would say is I, I feel like this, the, the, the whiplash uh, about turn in the middle where it becomes a different book felt a bit like a comment on Ellis and how much he took Michael for granted and didn't really consider Michael's uh, interior world. Um, and there is a line in the book which almost excuses that uh, the, the, the jarring difference between the two sections uh, from Michael later on where he says, uh, pieces of a jigsaw, that's all the past was now. Um, and you could almost say that the disparate parts of this book uh, make up a jigsaw, you know, a jigsaw of Michael, Ellis and Annie's shared life together, which you can only see as a whole when you consider both parts. The other thing that felt a bit rogue for me is that the book starts with this wonderfully taut and yearning portrayal of marriage between Ellis's gorgeous, artistic, loving mother, Dora Judd, and his repressed, rageful father, her winning that Van Gogh portrait in a raffle in 1959. It's the very painting it's not a Van Gogh portrait, obviously, it's a, you know, copy poster. The very painting that Michael and Ellis first bond over, rather than choosing the whiskey that Ellis's father yelled at her to get, she chooses this painting and it's this real act of rebellion. Everything changes in, in their marriage after she gets this painting. It's this really portentous bit. And then she dies and it just dissipates. His father marries a lovely stepmother and mellows and all is well. It does feel like sometimes things things just sort of go nowhere, and I, I think that randomness is a, is a bit of a theme in in Sarah Winman's books. Um, you know, things things storylines peter out, and and new storylines come in. But that you know that said, without without being too cheesy about it, human life is random. Ellis's Ellis's father being an out and out villain might have been a a bit of an obvious route rather than him being a sort of troubled man who is a victim of his own masculinity as well. And there are certain things in this book which are tied up so well, like the the photograph on the mantelpiece, the uninstalled floorboards, and the Walt Whitman poetry that, that's mentioned throughout. All of that comes together in the final pages and, and just had me, I'm like sobbing when I first read it. I love Walt Whitman because I'm a basic bitch. How about the question of how is it aged? It only came out in 2017, so I would say it's aged, well, barely. I would say the only way it's it's aged in that time is is that it feels to me like it's uh, is that it feels to me like it's been almost bulldozed by the success of of Still Life. You know, you go on Amazon now and it's it's Tin Man from the best-selling author of Still Life. Would you say it's classic Whitman? Like if someone was new to her work, would this be the book that sums sums up her work? It's interesting. She she said it's the first thing she ever wrote, although in a very different form. But I think it actually plays against type. Uh, when God Was a Rabbit has a lot of unique characters with their own peculiar stories. Still Life is an even more massive book. It, it's like a years-long fa- found family saga with this epic Florentine setting and an oddball cast of lovable characters. Tin Man, in comparison, is a lot smaller. Although both Tin Man and When God Was a Rabbit, which is by far my favourite, do have male teenage relationships at their centre. In a lot of ways, Tin Man actually feels like a warm-up for still life with its ideas about art, its indulgent Mediterranean living, um, and and its idea of of itself as a book being almost like a painting of the characters. There's, there's literally a bit in Tin Man where Michael says, we are a still life. But generally, I think Tin Man feels like a much quieter novel than her other books. It, it's got a much smaller cast. It's a much smaller book. It's less than 200 pages long. And I think for a book to be, you know, 195 pages and to be basically perfect is the, the mark of a very, very good author. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Pandora, would you like to tell us about your book? 
completely coincidentally, I also chose a book that deals with AIDS or rather a series of books that deal with AIDS, which neither of us had realised until we read the others. But that makes it sound like a very sad book. And actually, Tales of the City is a pin sharp, laugh out loud, saucy caper of a book. The first in a series of nine books that the American writer Armistead Maupin wrote from 1978 to 2014. So to back up a bit, until earlier this year, I'd never read any Armistead Maupin. I'd heard his name, but then I was reading an essay by Daisy Buchanan for the Pound Project called Burn After Reading about rediscovering the pleasure of reading. And she mentions Tales of the City as a book. And I thought, okay, what is what is he about? What is this about? And I got onto World of Books and I bought a load and I read four of his books in a week and marvelled at how an entire world, the entire tales of the city world, had been happening for almost half a century and I just had no idea about it. Does this happen to you, Bobby? Because it happens to me all the time. It does and it happened with this. I'd, I'd heard the name Armistead Maupin because I mean, it's not exactly a name... <laughs> you'd forget the most novelist sounding novelist of all time. When I started reading, I realised I'd heard of one of the main characters as well, Michael Mouse Tolliver, who's who's sort of famous in his own right. But I'd never heard of the the cultural phenomenon that is Tales of the City, because that's really what it is. Tales of the City is a love letter to and a satire about San Francisco, which started life as a daily newspaper column, first for the Marin County newspaper and then the San Francisco Chronicle, much like Charles Dickens started 150 years earlier. And it was released every single day. I mean, that's quite hefty, 800 words every single day. And because of that, the chapters are very bitty. They're only 800 words at a time because the books were made up of columns. So it's very pacey and lots of cliffhangers. I did not know it came out every day. That is... (laughs) That gave me the as as you know as a, as a journalist who hates deadlines. <laughs> that gave me the the willies. It is very Dickensian, isn't it? It's got this this sprawling cast. Totally. Of I think Christopher Christopher Isherwood, you know, the the legendary gay novelist, uh, caught, said it's it's like Dickens, and it it really is. It also that that um, uh, column format means that the books have these very short chapters with very descriptive chapter headings you have chapters like anguish in bohemia the maestro vanishes <laughs> uh miss singleton dines alone those sort of chapter headings for me felt like something you more often see in science fiction or, or adventure books like lord of the flies swallows and amazons watership down um definitely the great wild west books like blood meridian by cormac mccarthy use them all of those are books about odyssey and adventure, which I, I I think is nice because this this book has them too, and it is a story of of frontier. It's it's the story about this this buttoned up girl from Cleveland, Mary Ann Singleton, heading out west and and discovering a new world. The book begins with Mary Ann Singleton, and it actually makes me feel like I too have arrived in San Francisco. The first couple of lines are just so good. Mary Ann Singleton was 25 years old when she saw San Francisco for the first time. She came to the city alone for an eight-day vacation. On the fifth night, she drank three Irish coffees at the Buena Vista, realised that her mood ring was blue, and decided to phone her mother in Cleveland to tell her that she isn't coming home. It's just such a good um, such a good entry. He's revered Armistead Morpin for being the seminal chronicler of San Francisco life, a time when San Francisco was really coming into being. And he's often referred to as the chronicler of queer San Francisco life, which he says he fights against. He says, I'm a novelist who is gay rather than a gay novelist, because as he says, there are plenty of straight characters too. But I think what people mean is that he wrote about this enormous cast of characters, this really diverse cast of characters, not necessarily in terms of race, but in terms of sexuality, very diverse in this completely naturalistic, loving way, kind of a bit like Sarah Winman in that sense. And this cast of characters live in a building of flats at 28 Barbary Lane, which is absolutely kind of the locus, it's the linchpin, the locus for everything where they all live. And it's owned by a woman named Anna Madrigal, who harbours a secret, which you will know if you've watched the 2019 Netflix series with Laura Linney who stars in the 1993 series too, which I'm dying to get hold of, but it's quite hard. And that series amalgamates all of the books and sets it in the present day. So just beware if you watch that before reading any books. You do find out what Anna Madrigal's secret is in a later book. But essentially, all you need to know at the beginning is that years ago, Anna Madrigal comes into some money, she buys Barbary Lane, and she turns into a haven for this disparate band of 
people she calls her children or a brilliant term you used earlier, her found family. And what I love the most about this book, even almost 45 years on, it feels fresh and saucy and unapologetic. It's so funny as well. The the humour is so pithy and so dry. I was constantly folding over pages where lines made me laugh out loud. I, I think in in the one of the first chapters, Marianne gets gets hit on by a guy at a bar and he says, what sign are you? And she says, do not disturb. <laughs> and one of my favourite lines, which I, I think sums up this bawdy, outrageous tone of the whole thing, but also the idea of San Francisco as the main character and San Francisco as a safe haven for, for queer people. Uh, there's a line that says, uh, in this town, the love that dare not speak its name almost never shuts up. It's so good. I also adore the way he skewers upper class or upper middle class society in San Francisco. So he does this with the Halcyon Day family. So you've got Dee Dee and Beecham. Hold on, there was just a bit that really made me laugh. According to the social columns, he had met his wife-to-be at the 1973 Spinster's Ball. Within months, he was savouring the delights of pool parties in Atherton, brunch on Belvedere and ski treks in Tahoe. The Halcyon Day courtship had been whirlwind. Dee and Beecham were married in June 1973 on a sunlit slope of Halcyon Hill, the bride's family estate in Hillsborough. At her own insistence, the bride was barefoot. She wore a peasant dress by Adolfo of Saks Fifth Avenue. Her maid of honour and Bennington roommate, Muffy Van Wick, recited sections from Khalil Gibran, while a string quartet played the theme from Elvira Madigan. After the wedding, the bride's mother, Franny Halcyon, told reporters, we're so proud of our Dee Dee. She's always been such an individualist. And she's obviously not remotely individual. She goes on to become quite individual. And there is this real clash of old world versus New World in the books, which I adore. You've got Dee Dee and Beecham and Dee Dee's parents, Franny and Edgar Halsin. And then this New World represented by the people who live at 28 Barbary Lane. I mean, Anna Madrigal is always growing some new variety of weed, despite being in her 50s, 60s. And she tapes spliffs to her children's doors almost daily. And then you've got people like Michael, who have moved to San Francisco to be openly gay. I also think it's it's brilliant to have uh, that that stormy, awful marriage between Dee Dee Halcyon and Beecham Day and have their names hyphenated as Halcyon Day. It's it's very typical of the kind of humour in these books. It also offers such an evocative insight into this place and time. When Mona, Michael's best friend, is low, she says she's going to curl up with a quaalude and an Anais Nin. Meanwhile, Michael is off for a double bill of Fellini at the surf. And I love the use of brand names in books as well as it really cements kind of the fashion of that time. So Michael at one point is in the shower with his Levi's and he's scrubbing at them with a wire brush to get just the round, just the right amount of distress. The period references are so good. Even though the first book's written in the 70s, they just feel so 80s. It's full of jockey shorts and roller skates and leg warmers. There's a bit where uh, where Marianne, it says, she put her feet up, sipped a tab and checked her mail. <laughs> this is really showing my age, but that reminds me of when Rachel refuses to go to some dinosaur ball with Ross in Friends because he shouted at her. And so instead she gets out her note cards and says, I'm going to catch up on my correspondence, which feels, you know, like, <laughs> Deck. I mean, it was decades ago, but it really feels like decades ago. Yeah, it's funny. The idea of like checking your mail is like, oh wow, that must be the eighties. <laughs> but yeah, the 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 sex and drugs talk is so frank and so brilliant as well. It's filled like really matter of factly with sex clubs and orgies, poppers, loads of quaaludes, which is is like a, a, a sort of period thing in itself, uh, and copious amounts of cocaine. But it always feels joyous and, and never smutty. There's there's another great line. I think it's one of the first times the the book takes us to the one of the bathhouses of, of San Francisco. And it says, Valencia Street, with its union halls and Mexican restaurants and motorcycle repair shops, was an oddly squalid setting for the gates of heaven. But um, as chirpy and, and lighthearted as this book is, when you do read it in hindsight, you, you, you can't escape the, the looming spectre of AIDS, uh, simply because this is San Francisco and the 80s are about to begin. The first Tales of the City book was published in 1978. It wasn't until the summer of 1981 that the first articles about AIDS started being published. The fourth book in the series, Baby Cakes, came out in 1984, the year that San Francisco public officials actually closed the bathhouses due to the risk. So, I mean, that's when the crisis, 
you know, clearly had, had got to that point. It was very much in, in, the, in the public eye and it started to seep into the story. Michael is in the fourth book working at the AIDS hotline in San Francisco. The depiction of AIDS is something rumblingly terrifying in the background before being properly confronted from book five onwards. The books I haven't read yet, actually, and I'm dying to. But the gay plague, as Armistead has called it, is sown throughout his books so beautifully and powerfully. He said in an interview, everyone around me started to die. We thought we were all going to die. God, that I've just in that moment, that really gives a flashback to um, what Michael's friend Chris on the hospital ward says. He was accused of ruining our morning's entertainment with your political agenda because, of course, people were reading this column over their coffee every morning. I mean, it's incredibly brave and powerful in that sense. But he says, you know, he had to put it in because AIDS was happening all around me. And in the third book, and I found this so fascinating, he includes a storyline about um, Michael Mouse having a love affair with a movie star whose name is redacted in the book. And rivetingly, it is based on the real life love affair Armistead had with the closeted movie star Rock Hudson, who died of AIDS in 1985. Here he is talking about it on Desert Island Discs in 2007. And they were being blamed for for something that they didn't even know how they got it. It was not as if they were aware that this thing was out there. So it was especially brutal. Um, you, you said that you wrote about it in your columns, of course, and, and mm. one of the people you wrote about was Rock Hudson. I mean, this extraordinary male heterosexual icon of, mm. of the 50s who, you know, all women lusted after and who couldn't really have been more of an emblem of all that was good and true in the American male. And he himself did not come out until the final weeks of his life when he was dying from No, and I, and I actually wrote about him well before his diagnosis because he had come into my life. It's a good example of how my life was working at that point. Um, my material was coming to me, and I actually became part of his little circle and was fascinated by the notion of this man who had to live this completely secret life. There's a book uh, that Armistead Morpin wrote in 2007 called Michael Tolliver Lives, um, and it breaks tradition a bit because it's all from his point of view, and it's essentially uh, Mouse's memoir of surviving the AIDS crisis, uh, not unlike Michael's section uh, in Tin Man. And it, it, it seemed really strange to me that we both, by total coincidence, chose books about a character called Michael navigating life as a gay man in the 80s in the shadow of the AIDS epidemic. It's such a weird coincidence. There, there, are, there are a few similarities between these books because, you know, Tales of the City is really funny and you wouldn't call Tin Man a comedy, but they both navigate seriousness and, and lightness very well. Tales of the City is very entertaining though there is so much to choose from but what is your favorite bit my favorite bit is actually in the second book more tales of the city and i am aware that we are i am aware that we are jumping around to lots of different books because they just feel like such a collection but in the second book it's the coming out letter that michael writes to his parents which was published in the newspaper in 1977 and which Armistead used to come out to his own parents. There is, as you may have gathered, a fair amount of the author's own autobiography and Michael Tolliver's character. Here's Ian McKellen reading Michael's letter to Mama in 2018. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, it's all right, kid, you can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like everyone else. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends, all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though, you can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. So Michael writes his letter in response to his parents who begin writing to him from Florida about their adoration for Anita Bryant, who was a singer who headed up the Save Our Children, not to be confused with Save the Children, Save Our Children campaign in 1977, which opposed gay and lesbian rights in America. But Armistead himself had been composing this letter for half of his life. His parents were deeply conservative, and of them he has said this, to say my parents didn't like the books would be an understatement. When Tales came out in 1978, they wrote to me, Red Tales of the City today, moving to Zanzibar tomorrow. That letter is actually referenced again in, in Michael Tolliver Lives, the 2007 book I just mentioned. Um, and that book features features Michael's family more heavily. 
I, I read it because I wanted to read one of the last books in the series to get a sense of how the characters and the, their voices had progressed, but but also how the books had progressed in relation to AIDS and, and in relation to society becoming more progressive. Michael Tolliver Lives actually starts with a quote from the original Tales of the City book, which came out about 30 years before. People like you and me, we're going to be 50-year-old libertines in a world full of 20-year-old Calvinists. <laughs> I thought it was a really beautiful way of marking the passage of time because uh, both the characters and the author have have become, you know, 50, 60-year-olds at this point. This is a series that's, that, that ran, ran or is still running and has, has been running for almost half a century. So rereading the first book, Pandora, how, how do you think it's aged? I'm jealous you've read Michael Tolliver Lives. I just want to gobble up all the rest of these books. They're such comfort reads for me. Well, this first instalment came out in 1978, so you would expect there to be some stuff that doesn't chime 45 years later. And even for a really progressive book, there are some wincy bits, which some of which are portrayed well in the Netflix series, actually, like when Michael Tolliver's younger boyfriend gets in a fight with um, a 50-something gay man who uses lots of insular derogatory terms. And then there's this wild bit when it transcribes that a model, Dorothea, who is introduced to us as this very famous, very successful black model, and then it turns out she's been darkening her skin with pills and ultraviolet light to get more work under the guise of being exotic and is in fact white. Honestly, you should have seen my face when I read that bit. And they they sort of paint it like they sort of make her the the victim. You're just you're meant to <laughs> feel sorry for her. It, it's it's really weird. I mean, he does love a wild reach. Like when we have to mention Norman, the private detective investigating Mrs. Magical's secret, turned professional paedophile who's been living at Barbary Lane and dating Marianne. He just falls off a cliff and is never mentioned again. Loads of people, loads of people die in these books in in like you know freak accidents or or, or bouts of violence. They're they're quite they're quite wild, but yeah, there is nothing more abrupt in them than Norman being exposed as a wrong and and then uh, promptly falling off a cliff. I love that combination though of like absolute farce and caper and real bits of history written kind of as they were happening in this newspaper. But I mean, wait until you read the third instalment, where's the where there is an entire caper based on the Jonestown massacre. And yes, I did just conflate the words caper and massacre because honestly, that's what it is. The first book, though, by comparison, it, it's a bit more tame uh, and it's much more San Francisco-centric. Would you say it's classic Morpin? 100%. And I actually love that it's more San Francisco-centric. I think he's at his best when he is rooted in San Francisco. These are books responding to moments in real life. And I love that. I learned a lot from these books in terms of history. And it's pure fiction at the same time. I totally agree that it's best when it's in San Francisco. And there, there are moments in the other books where, you know, if it goes to London, if it goes to Orlando or Seattle, you're just going, oh, get get us back to San Francisco. What about the reviews? Was there anything, any reviews you saw that you really agreed with? Anything you violently disagreed with? As it came out in 1978, and I haven't got down to the library with my magnifying glass, I annoyingly can't find any reviews of the time online. But there was consistent controversy over his work, unsurprisingly, because, of course, it was published weekly in the newspaper for the first three books that kind of rumbled on this controversy. And when the first televised series came out in 1993, it was on Channel 4 in the UK first, and then it was screened in the US in 1994 and so many people complain that the channel PBS actually pulled it off screen. It is pleasing that Channel 4 embraced it first. Fun fact that many people probably already know, Channel 4 featured the first ever on-screen lesbian kiss the following year via Brookside starring Anna Friel as Beth Jordake. I did not know that and now I do. Did you not? not. Iconic Anna Friel moment. I guess in the context of that controversy, that the Netflix show uh, actually shows how far things have come in a relatively short space of time because it's got a really diverse cast and an all-queer writer's room. Yeah, that's something he, I think, has been criticised for, is that it was diverse in one way but not diverse in another way. And the show, sometimes a little bit on the nose, the show really does go to kind of lengths to address that. And Armour said himself as an exec producer on the show. And he also turns up on screen at one point. I clocked him because he's quite... He's quite recognisable. He's on the front row at a particularly saucy wedding where both groom and groom are wearing leather harnesses and tuxedo jackets. It's a really enjoyable series, the Netflix series, but don't use it to replace the books. I actually wouldn't use it until you've read a lot of the books because I don't think it's got the same impact. But I do still fully recommend a binge of it. You 
clearly love the books. What would you change? Dorothea's black fishing, for sure. I like the element of laugh out loud fantasy in his books, but not this bit. Yeah, her Rachel Dolezal <laughs> moment. Uh, I would I would probably change that too. Um, other than that, my, my only comment, this is more of a comment than a question, uh, is that <laughs> I... You are that person in the audience at the talk. Yeah. So when I read a book that's part of a series, I have this annoying voice in my head that, that's going, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're not getting the full story, so it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so in that respect, I, I would have liked each book to have felt more rounded with a less meandering plot and more of a, a sort of beginning, middle and end. But with the nature of it being being newspaper columns, that was never going to be the case. So it's a really quite pointless thing for me to say. No, I think that's really true. And it's probably why I haven't been able to resist slightly jumping all over the other books in this conversation because he didn't write them as books he wrote them as a newspaper serial that was ongoing without those hard stops that a book has what i want to know bobby is if you will go on to read any more in the series so you've read number one and you've actually read the last one then michael tolliver lives is tales of the city for you it is, yeah, and I think it's one of those nice things because it's it's written uh, as a serial that you can jump in and out of. So I'd be I'd be astounded if I don't come back to it. And I mean, you've made the Jonestown one uh, <laughs> sound so inviting in its incredible weirdness that I think I'm going to have to at least experience that one for myself. So that's it. That's all we've got time for for today. We really hope you have enjoyed the Virgin Voyage of Book Chat. You can email us any musings that you have at bookchatpod at gmail.com. But otherwise, we'll be back in your ears on the 1st of January. Our books for January's episode are White Teeth by Zadie Smith and Convenience Store Woman by Siaka Murata. Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer. Sound is by Joel Grove with production by Pandora Sykes. Till then, merry reading and merry Christmas. And a happy new year. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.